House rule number one, mother is always right. House rule number two, if mother is wrong, see rule number one. House rules, we all have them. Sometimes those rules are written on a whiteboard in the laundry room or perhaps taped to the refrigerator, or maybe within a framed piece of calligraphy hanging in the dining room, maybe with a touch of southern living decor to make it feel a little more homey rather than stale. But for many of us, house rules aren't something we've ever seen on a piece of paper or in a frame. These unspoken expectations are instead to be learned and to be learned quickly without being told twice. If we want to maintain some sense of peace or order in our home, we'll have to catch on early or else when I get the eye. So what are your house rules? Do you have them clearly spelled out or do you merely just assume and expect people to kind of catch on early to what is allowed and what isn't? Some house rules are pretty straightforward. If you've never, like, written some down, maybe you get inspired today, you take out that ink pen and start writing down some new house rules. Here's one example of house rules that I recently found. If you sleep on it, make it up. If you step on it, wipe it up. If you wear it, hang it up. If you drop it, pick it up. If you eat out of it, wash it up. If it rings, answer it. Boylston kids, if it howls, feed it. We all know intuitively that house rules exist, right? House rules exist so that they promote peace and order in our homes. They exist to emphasize that our homes are to be treated with greater care and respect than maybe our backyards would. House rules also exist to kind of give everyone in the house a sense of responsibility. A responsibility to do your part around the house, to work hard. Don't be a sloth. Get off the couch. Work together as a team and not expect just one person to do everything to take care of the things that have been entrusted to you by those in authority over you. Friends, we all have house rules. Whether they're written out or they're assumed, we all got them. But did you know that God has house rules for his church as well? There is a certain design that God has sovereignly decided to how he wants his church formed, how his church is to function, a certain foundation that lays the groundwork for bearing good fruit that lasts well into the future, a certain architectural blueprint, if you will, that specifies what methods and what tools we use to build his church, because his church exists to bring him glory, 
to show off his wisdom, to display his power through the people he has called to himself. Like our homes, God also has house rules for his church because he loves his church. He deeply cares for his church. In fact, the church, the elect people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation are the sheep that belong to him. The sheep that were purchased with the blood of God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. That means that things like peace and order, responsibility and stewardship, leadership and love, they are all things that matter to God in his church. Because his church is his house. So what are some of God's house rules for his church? How has God instructed us to organize ourselves into local congregations? Who has God set apart to lead and oversee and manage or steward these local churches? And what does God say about those who seek to disrupt and disregard God's house rules? To those questions, let's look together now at God's word. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 579. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Titus. Last week, we looked at Titus 1, verses 1 to 4, and I also gave us kind of a broad overview of the book. So if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to listen to it on the podcast. It'll kind of catch you up to speed on where we're at. And in our time last week, we learned how the Apostle Paul uh, was sent of God on one of his journeys to pass along the island of Crete, Acts chapter 27, and then how he laid some groundwork for these churches to be planted on this Mediterranean island, on the island of Crete. But sometime after his third missionary journey, uh, he got word, like a concerned parent would, that the Christian churches on this island needed help. There were some troubles. Uh, There was some upset people. Uh, There were things going on in God's house that wasn't right. Specifically, what Paul will convey to us today is that they needed biblical church leadership, and they needed the necessary instructions on how to maintain peace and order in God's house. The work Paul himself begun years previously, it was unfinished. Paul had planted the seeds. He had gotten some stuff set up, saw probably 20 or more churches formed on this island, but the work wasn't complete yet. There was work still to be done. There was work to find faithful men that would care for and manage God's people. Because the book of Titus from start to finish, not just today, but really the whole book, it really says this, God cares about the design of his church. In other words, how it's formed, how it's built, and he cares how his people are discipled. God cares. You might go to church with people who don't care. You might have parents who go to church who don't care. You might have pastors who actually think they're pastoring, but don't really care. But God cares. 
And because God cares, so should we. So like Paul did with Timothy in Ephesus and with other gospel workers on different missionary journeys, Paul delegated this work. He delegated this special mission to a man that was uniquely equipped for the task. A man whose character and doctrine had been tested in years past, and he had been proven to be a reliable man. A man whom Paul knew was ready and able for the tough task as he parachuted in to continue this good work of gospel ministry on the island of Crete. What was this man's name? Titus. You can see that clearly in Titus 1, verse 4. Look with me, Titus 1, verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Today we pick up in the next verse, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, as we seek to understand the first line of orders that Paul gave Titus on this mission. A mission where God would greatly use one man to help reshape the direction of many churches. Please follow with me as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 16. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but a hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that will serve as our outline this morning with some sub-points along the way. House rule number one, follow the right kind of leaders. House rule number one, follow the right kind of leaders. House rule number two, 
avoid the wrong kind of leaders. House rule number two, avoid the wrong kind of leaders. So house rule number one, follow the right kind of leaders. Well, that begs the question then, doesn't it? What is a leader? What is leadership all about? Well, at the very least, leadership is exercising authority over another. But friends, leadership is much more than that. Leadership involves having influence on others to accomplish a particular goal. Let me say that again. Leadership involves having influence on others to accomplish a particular goal. Now, leadership can have influence on us in a lot of different ways, right? We can be influenced through someone's example. We can be influenced through someone's beliefs. We can be influenced through someone's teaching, their rules, their laws, their commandments, their priorities, their passions. You can fill in all sorts of words, but example, their beliefs, and their teaching. In other words, a leader's words and a leader's actions can cause others to conform to their example. That means those who are led in time become like those who lead them. It's kind of like Simon says. Or watching an artist paint a drawing and you want to mimic them. The longer you watch them, the longer you study into them, the more you're probably going to be an artist or at least be shaped by what you see. When people ask the question, how, do you, how did you become who you are today? Was it because of where you grew up or the family you grew up with or the school you attended or were you just born this way? Is this something you couldn't control? Well, those questions aren't new. That's the old nature versus nurture debate. But to answer the question of how did I become who I am today? How did you become who you are today? That can't be answered with some kind of trite cliche. That's a complicated discussion when you're considering the topic of nature versus nurture. But the Bible says both. Both. Both in good ways and in bad ways. The Bible is explicitly clear, friends. We are sinful by nature. We inherit the grave clothes of depravity and rebellion to God from our forefather Adam. That's Romans chapter 5. Or consider David in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Friends, the Bible is painfully clear. It doesn't matter what continent you grew up on. We are all born by nature sinful. That means we aren't merely sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born as sinners. Friends, that means from the time we are born, we are in need of a mediator. We are in need of someone to stand in the gap 
between us, the sinner, and God, the Holy One. We have sinned, and all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. And God cannot tolerate or dwell or take pleasure in sin. You see, friends, if God were to be just towards all of us, we would spend an eternity under his wrath, separated from his mercy. But friends, God, in his mercy, sent a sacrifice. His only son, who would die as a perfect sacrifice, the perfect man, dying as the perfect lamb on the cross for the sins of everyone who would turn their eyes to Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, bore the penalty we deserve. And God, three days later, raised him from the dead. That was to prove that God is true. That Jesus is the only Savior that can ever rescue us from this sinful condition. Friends, if you have young children, or you're hoping that they will grow up to be something or someone one day, friends, somewhere in that top five list, pray that they know Jesus. Pray that they make money. Pray that they get good jobs. Pray that they marry well. But more importantly, pray that they look to Jesus. Because you can gain the whole world and be a hunky-dory, happy family and forfeit your soul in the end. Friends, if you got Jesus and are bankrupt of the world's goods, you got everything. Friends, we need a rescuer, a savior, and God has sent that only savior in the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ. But friends, the bad news is it's not that we're just born sinful and need a savior. We can be influenced by others to sin against our savior. Friends, we can grow up in environments and homes, dating relationships, marriages, churches, and be influenced in sinful ways that grieve The heart of God. Haven't you ever heard birds of a feather flock together? Or maybe we can get more biblical. Proverbs 13, 20. Give you a little more teeth when you want to share that with people. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Do you want to be wise? Choose the right kind of friends. You want to be wise? Hang out with the people that fear God. You want to be a fool? Follow people who reject God. You want to be a fool? Turn your eyes away from this book and turn your eyes to yourself. That's the summary of the book of Proverbs. Fear God or be a fool. Take your pick. And friends, if you want to become wise, find those men and women who are walking with God and you will become wise. That's precisely why Jesus warns us, doesn't he not? against the type of teachers we listen to, the type of pastors we follow, the type of books that we read, the type of discipleship classes we go to. Did he not say in Luke 6, verses 39 to 40, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. You know, sometimes leadership can influence us through direct verbal communication, where a person or a group of people instruct us. 
to say what they say and do what they do. A dentist, a boss, a teacher, a parent, a friend, a pastor. Maybe we've even heard these things said to us. Or maybe we've told these to others. Follow me. Imitate me. Listen to me. Learn from me. Watch me. Pay attention to me. Obey me. Trust me. But friends, leadership can influence us not only by direct verbal communication, but we can influence others by the example we set when they're watching how we live. You know that, right? Everyone's always watching you. And everyone's always watching me. The question is, what kind of influence is my life and your life having on others who are watching you? I remember as a kid, I, I grew up wanting to be a really good quarterback. And I remember my dad always telling me to watch a good quarterback on TV or when I was sitting in the stands. He would say, son, don't get caught up in the popcorn and hot dogs, though you can do that. But watch how the quarterback calls the huddle. Watch how he interacts with his teammates and the coaches. Pay attention to his attitude when his team is winning and when his team is losing. What was my dad teaching me to do? He was showing me how a good quarterback can influence me just by watching him, even if that quarterback never introduced himself to me. That means that any goodness we have in our lives, friends, first of all, is a measure of God's mercy to us. So we are born in sin, and we need to be born again, and only God can do that. But friends, though we can't create salvation in anyone, we can influence each other in becoming more godly or ungodly. We can speak more like Christ, or we can speak less like Christ simply by the people who influence us. You see, at different times and in different ways, God puts sound leaders, faithful men, faithful women, faithful expositors, faithful churches to help us stay on the narrow way. For many of us, whether they're a pastor or a friend, we call them role models we look up to. Uh, some we may have known very well, others maybe not at all. Someone you admire from afar and want to be like, even if you never really got to know them. How they talk, how they dress, how they lift weights or stay in shape, how they run their business, how they talk to their customers, their employees or their neighbors, how they raise their kids, how they treat their spouse. All of these things, beloved, that we see in others can actually work for our good to make us more wise, to make us more holy, to make us keep our eyes on Jesus. I mean, think about it for a minute. When you think of a good mom, what woman comes to your mind right now? When you think of a good dad, what man comes to your mind right now? 
When you think of a good friend, what person comes to your mind right now? When you think of a good pastor or a good church elder, what man comes to your mind right now? Friends, whoever these people are that have just kind of crossed your radar are the things you admire and esteem about them the same things that God cares most about. Well, friends, that's exactly what Titus chapter 1 is all about. Here in chapter 1, Paul's going to lay out for Titus the type of men that should serve as elders or overseers in God's church. These words are used interchangeably with one another to refer to the same shepherding or pastoring leadership office in the New Testament in God's church. So, very simple. What type of leaders should God's people follow? Here's the best way to summarize this section. God's people should follow faithful men. God's people should follow faithful men. Now, in verses 6 to 9, he's going to lay out characteristics, qualities, traits of what faithful men look like. And you can also read the parallel account in your own time of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So, in what ways do these men show themselves faithful? In what ways do they prove they are leaders worth following in God's house? Well, Paul's going to use around 12 or so qualities, depends on how you count them, both positive and negative, what these men must be and what these men must not be characterized by. So here's a summary. Number one, he is faithful to his Lord by his godly example that commends the gospel. He is faithful to his Lord by his godly example that commends the gospel. Number two, he is faithful to his Lord by his leadership in the home. He is faithful to his Lord by his leadership in the home. And number three, he is faithful to his Lord in how he handles the scriptures to disciple others. First, let's notice his faithfulness by his godly example. The first qualification he lays out, it'll serve like a thumbprint of his identification as a faithful brother, faithful before God, and faithful before his fellow man. Did you notice? Paul says, starting right there, off the leadoff hitter for the qualifications, he must be above reproach. It's actually mentioned twice in this list of characteristics, which means, for emphasis, this is very important. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. If anyone is above reproach. And then verse 7 again. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Reproach. What does that mean? Well, this is speaking of the man's godly reputation wherever he goes. His integrity. What you see is what you get. And what you get is worth emulating pretty much in any situation you find him in. Now, don't get me wrong. Above reproach does not mean he never sins. He's above temptation. He's above falling. He's perfect in every way. That's not what that word means. He's still growing as a Christian like every other, other believer. He's being sanctified by the same Holy Spirit that every Christian is being sanctified by. But to be above reproach 
or blameless means there is nothing in his life, namely his character that is glaringly contradicting. There is nothing in his life that puts a dark cloud over his bright witness for Jesus. Uh, To expand on this idea even more, he isn't a spiritual chameleon. He isn't one person around his colleagues at work, another person around his family at home, another person around the members of the church, another person in the deer stand, another person on the sports field, another person at the gym, another person at the bar, another person behind closed doors with their smartphone or computer. No, his life has a sense of wholeness to it. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is what he's living for. And Jesus convicts him and turns him from his sin when he is in sin. Friends, there's a godly consistency to his life. Not godly perfection, but consistency. There's a pattern that shows up on the charts of living for Jesus. He's a man who's been tested and tried. And what comes out when you squeeze him, when you put him through the fire, when he's placed in situations to be faithful or faithless, what you see, what you hear is integrity and the pursuit of godliness. He's viewed by others as a man who earnestly desires to be holy. In that sense, he can't be blamed for unrepentant sin or blatant hypocrisy in his life. There's nothing in his life that opens himself up to public shame or censure. Most obviously, one really good test that the man lives above approach, unbelievers who work with him and live next to him won't be shocked he's a leader in God's church. He is above reproach. You'll then notice in verses 7 and 8, Paul begins to flesh out more about what this above-reproach life looks like through the fruits of the Spirit. That's really all we're going to see here. He's a Christian that you can see in his life. Look at verse 7. He must not be arrogant. The word literally means he's not self-willed. This speaks of his humble attitude and servant-heartedness. He's a shepherd who feeds and leads, but he's not a harsh taskmaster. He's not a tyrant. To speak of his humble mindset, he he doesn't even believe his own press clippings. When he's praised, when he's adored, he's not taking his like ego pumping and going, oh yeah, please, please. He's not known for that. He's thankful for the encouragement, but he doesn't let it go to his head. He doesn't walk around passing around his ego resume, boasting about himself to others. Friends, he exudes the aroma of Philippians chapter 2, a man who shows genuine concern for others like Christ has for us. You know, the reason why he must not be arrogant or prideful is because ministry is a dangerous place for prideful men. It can be easy to hide. It can be easy to fake it. It can be easy to manipulate people in the church by saying what they want to hear, flatter them to recruit a following, and never be called out for it. 
That's why Archibald Alexander and Jansen, this is a good word for me and you, brother. He once said, too much applause is a dangerous thing to a young minister. I bless God for him putting us through the ringer the last 18 months. Not because evil is good, but boy, it has kept us humble, hasn't it? Keep me in a basketball gym for 25 years. If that's what keeps me humble, then come what may. Friends, I don't know what kind of trials or the ringer God has put you through, but if it's kept you humble, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, the parallel account. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, he says he must not be quick-tempered and not violent. In other words, he's got a handle on his emotions. The local church is not Mike Tyson knockout round for the pastor leading Christ's sheep. He's not a brawler. He's not known as a quarrelsome man. Like the Lord Jesus, he's certainly going to be passionate for truth. He's certainly going to hate sin. I mean, you've got to have some backbone. A little steel spine wouldn't hurt in some pulpits today. He's going to want to protect people from harm. But this man's not constantly looking to debate everybody. He's not the guy on the internet looking for the next debate and next argument. He's not word vomiting everything he's thinking or feeling. There's a little bit of censure and a little bit of editing to his mouth, a little taming of the tongue. He's not running people over like a train. He's not trying to win at all cost. Even when he corrects others, even when he challenges others, he's not a bully. He can show tough love to Christ's sheep and yet be tender and compassionate all at the same time. Verse 7, he's not a drunkard. Now, this isn't teaching that he's totally abstinent from alcohol. He can certainly hold that conviction. You can be a teetotaler, one who totally abstains from alcohol, if that's the position a brother wants to take with a clear conscience before God and his people, then he should take that. Romans chapter 14 is a great passage to meditate on, on things like that. Examine your conscience before God and man. But the point here is not, does the man drink alcohol? That's not the point. Some Baptists have gone too far by adding things to that qualification. Here's the point. Does the man demonstrate self-control with his bodily appetites? Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Friends, don't be a drunk. It's a command for all Christians to obey. There's nothing all that exemplary about don't get wasted. Don't be intoxicated. That's for all Christians, and that's for the man who's leading God's people. You don't want a boozer, but you want someone who has self-control. He's control. He's measured. He weighs out his Christian freedom from what is lawful and what is helpful. And, and it doesn't even stop with alcohol. It's also drug use, of course and gluttony, all those things are involved in his self-control of bodily appetites. Verse 7, he's not greedy for gain. In other words, his desires, his priorities, the way he talks about the budget, it's marked by a measured contentment. He's generous, he's thankful, 
But he's not in pastoral ministry for the money. He's preaching sermons not to simply build his own kingdom, but he wants to see God's kingdom advance. He's not fleecing the sheep to get rich off them. He uses money, he receives money, he spends money, he saves money, but money is not his God. You're around him long enough and you realize whether he has much or little, the Lord is his God, not possessions or wealth. Then Paul begins to drill down here on the other side of the coin, and now he's going to show more positively. So the first half is more what he's not characterized by. Not this, not that, not this, not that. All right, so positively, what fruits of the Spirit are so evident that we should go, ooh, I want some of that in my life. I'm lacking in that area. I want to grow in that way too. And again, as I read these, keep in mind, the man has not arrived. If you talk to his wife, she might go, hmm, hmm, I've been praying a lot over this one. Well, he's still growing too. He hasn't arrived, but these are evident in his life in some way. Verse 8, he's hospitable. That means he's approachable. He's welcoming and accommodating to others. Even strangers that come across his path, he's welcoming to a guest he doesn't even know. Hospitality can certainly mean opening up his home to others, uh, but this can be much more than that. He shares his meal times or coffee times with others. Uh, he's not afraid to pick up the phone or FaceTime or whatever you're into to communicate with someone. Uh, he's, he's typically the one lingering before and after the service to get to know people in the church. He's, he's approachable. He's welcoming. He's hospitable. Uh, there's a story of a man who served as a lay elder for several years in a church, and the last Sunday he was at the church because his job was relocating him, I think it was to Florida, which was a good ways away from where he was at, the lead pastor asked everyone in the church to stand up if they had ever been in Jim and his wife's home. 90% of the 350 and 400 person church that night stood to their feet. What that was is the pastor's way of encouraging the church. See this man? He's exemplified hospitality and everyone standing in this room can attest to it. It was an encouragement to the church. It was an encouragement to Jim and his wife. It was an encouragement to the existing elders in that congregation. Friends, he doesn't have to be an introvert or an extrovert. He might have young kids, and he has to be very careful this time to protect his schedule. But at the very end of the day, uh, he's not putting up Fort Knox in his life. He actually welcomes people in it, not shuts people out. Verse 8, he's a lover of good. He's a lover of good. His love for others, his love for God, his love for serving is contagious. Uh, later in the book of Titus, in chapters 2 and 3, there's going to be an emphasis that Paul gives Titus to tell the believers to be zealous for good works. That means get excited, get enthusiastic, get passionate, get motivated to show off how good Jesus is by devoting yourself to good works. Well, this man is a good example in that. In whatever ways God has gifted him and given him time to do so, he's a leader in many ways and a model of good works. Now, verse 8, he, he must be self-controlled. Uh, basically, he's sober-minded. His speech, his emotions, his ability to think carefully and sensibly and biblically, it shows that the Lord is controlling his life. 
He's not a constant pendulum over here. He's off in this doctrine. That's like his cool thing. And then he's way over here and he's off his rocker. He's constantly being swung by whatever's popular, whatever's raging on YouTube or on TV. He's just, this brother's just measured. You're going to hear more of this next week. Baby Christians go like this. They're the pendulum and the clock. That's why God gives us elders to keep us steady, keep us self-controlled. Put us back at that kind of happy medium, staying focused on the Lord. Again, you'll notice in Titus chapter 2, self-control and sober-mindedness is to be true of older women, younger women, older men, and younger women, and younger men, all of them. And they're often going to see that in the leaders in God's church. That's why a church needs leaders to embody this. If you want to see a church that looks like a party ship in the midst of a storm, think about that image for a moment. A cruise ship, a party ship in the midst of a hurricane coming, then put men in leadership that lack self-control. That's what your church will look like. If you want a church that has peace and order, prudence and patience, then put men in leadership that embody it. Finally, verse 8, he says he is upright, holy, and disciplined. Friends, that just means he's following Jesus. Jesus says, come and follow me, and boy, not perfectly, but exemplary, he does it. He's righteous and obedient. He cares about his Lord. He cares not about his will be done, but the Lord's will be done. He echoes Paul's words that the Christian race, the Christian life is like a race, one that you have to not fight aimless about, but stay focused on that eternal reward. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In this way, this man can tell others to imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Secondly, kind of big heading now, we're going to drop down. Notice another characteristic of his faithfulness. He's faithful to his Lord by his leadership in the home. Now, if you go back up to verse 6, he mentions the quality of his commitment to his wife and leadership over his children. In verse 6, it says he is to be the husband of one wife. Literally in Greek, it's a one-woman man. Though marriage isn't required for the office, most men serving as an elder will be married. But the fact that he's married or has a ring on his hand does not automatically make him qualified. That's not the point. Jesus was not married. Paul was not married by the time he was an apostle. The point is the quality and commitment of the man's marriage, the fidelity of the man and as he's fulfilling his marriage vows to his wife. If the man is single, he should be honorable in his character and sexual purity towards other women. Uh, this is going to show up in any dating relationship he's in, and it will certainly show up in how he treats other women in the church. Uh, this man is both kind to men and women, but he's not known as the flirty guy. He's not the guy with the crude posters or the crude images on his phone or making suggestive or inappropriate comments to women. He's a one-woman kind of man. Gentlemen, he's the kind of man you would feel 100% at peace with leaving your wife around him. 
Ladies, he's the kind of man that shows faithfulness to his wife in a way that makes you feel safe around him. And if the man has children, he shows an overall concern for leading his children. And that's why Paul says the home is the natural testing ground if a man can shepherd God's house. His ability to lead his wife and his children who are his first flock. You'll also notice in verse 6, the ESV, which I'm preaching out of, uh, translates his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, depending on your translation, whether it's the New King James, NASB, KJV, CSB, NIV, NLT, I've looked at them all, it might render it differently. It could say children who believe or faithful children. Let me give you an interpretive tip for those 10% of you who may care. When you're studying words in the original language, you have to look at how the word is used in different contexts. Just because the word means believer in one section of Scripture does not mean it's accurately translated the same in another portion of Scripture. So the Greek word there is pistos. And the best way to understand what it means is looking at the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 to 5, and the broader context of what Paul's trying to convey. So how do we understand the qualification about a man's children? It's important to note that the man serving as an elder, he can't convert his children. Friends, if we can't convert adults, we can't guarantee the end result's conversion in an adult. Well, how on earth can we put that burden on a man to convert his children? Titus 1.1 says, the elect are God's. That's God's prerogative to save those who he has chosen before the foundation of the earth. Not mine. He evangelizes, he prays, but only God can save. The point here is not converting your children as if you could do that or as if God guarantees it. He doesn't. But it's the man's ability to lead, protect, manage, and influence his children to submit under his leadership. In other words, his children, when they look at their dad, they're not looking at such a blatant hypocrite that they're going, you know what, I'm just going to live like the world because that's exactly what my dad does. Oh, he's somebody on Sunday at church. Man, you ought to see him Monday through Saturday. He abuses us. He lies to us. He's unfaithful to my mom. Friends, I've heard that from church members. Not about pastors here, but in churches elsewhere. Friends, if I'm seeing a rebellious child in an elder's home, the first thing I'm asking is not what's wrong with the child, but where's dad? Where's dad? He can't convert him. But usually that means he's not being attentive. He's taking his hand off the wheel. Work's become more important. Friends have become more important. He's maybe passive or neglectful. He might need to take a step back for a season. Again, we want to care for our children because, guys, pastor's kids are just like your kids. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and it doesn't say except pastor's kids. That's not how that works. We're all depraved through and through. And your pastors need your prayers, and they need encouragement and help and cheering and advice like the rest of us and raising our kids in a way that honors the Lord. Thank you, church, for not making my kids feel like they live in a fishbowl. Thank you, church, for letting them be who they are 
and not putting unnecessary pressure on me and Julie. Thank you for showing understanding when you can say, we need some encouragement or a vacation, just like the rest of you. Thank you for being a church that's gracious in that way. And number three, he's faithful to his Lord and how he handles the scriptures. Look at verse nine. It's really the basic function you see here of what an elder is really doing. He's an example to the flock and he's an example in his teaching. Look at verse nine. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, the man serving as an elder should show some mature level of competency in the scriptures. Now, this does not mean he has to have a PhD, THM, MDiv, or some other initial other than Mr., okay? Seminary is not the requirement in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. It can be useful, it can be helpful, but that's not the qualification there. A man should exemplify in some measure a mature understanding of the scriptures. And watch this. He's not just a theological egghead. He can actually open his mouth and encourage the saints to obey sound doctrine. So look at the brothers. Look at the men that sheep tend to flock to for advice. They seem to prosper under his teaching, his small group, his counsel, his preaching. Whatever ways he's teaching sound doctrine, the church is being built up. That's a man that might be one of the qualifications of an elder. Well, these men are worth imitating as leaders because they meet God's house rules, his qualifications for leading his people. Elders who are qualified are gospel men. Teachers, you might like this. Qualified elders are gospel glue sticks in God's church. When Christians are around them, they stick to them. But more than that, they stick closer to Jesus because of their influence. When you're around them, their holiness and their love and their commitment to their family and their love for God and the Bible just makes you want to be around them. I'm more godly when I'm around that man. These three dear brothers that I've nominated to you to pray about, Jeff Pruitt, Tom Chain, Alan Williams, I love these brothers. They are wonderful men. They are loving their families. They are loving you and they are loving God's word. And I need them in my life to shepherd me. But I'm thankful that the Lord has made that evident. And I'm praying for more men to aspire to the godliness of this qualification. And maybe one day God can give you that heart to shepherd God's church with us. Friends, we must move on. We spent a long time on those qualifications. And we did for a reason. Why does Titus need to stay on this Mediterranean island where it's hot, it's messy. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a plane. He's got to travel over 3,200 square miles with over 20 churches with all these problems, and he's got to look for these men. Why? Why did Paul say, stay right where you're at, young man. I need you to finish the task. Find these faithful men. Why? Well, it's the same reason that churches today, even in the River Valley, need to heed Titus chapter 1. Sheep need faithful shepherds. Sheep need godly 
biblically qualified men to care for their souls. And churches need faithful men who will confront wolves in the church. Which leads to our second big point, which is shorter. House rule number two, avoid the wrong kind of leaders. In verses 10 to 16, Paul informs Titus that there are false teachers and those who follow them. And it's causing all sort of problems on the island. Upsetting whole households, wrecking families. Churches are in disarray. Apparently these ringleaders have some form of Jewish background. Uh, he describes them, looking there in verse 10, as those of the circumcision party. Uh, this is speaking out they're, they're more than likely Jewish. Maybe even they're the Judaizers that Acts 15, the book of Galatians, Philippians 3 talks about. We're not exactly sure, but at some point along the way, they were strictly tied to the law of Moses, but they were distorting the gospel in some way. In verse 14, we're told in some measure what they were teaching. Uh, they were not teaching sound doctrine, what Paul's very clear about, but rather they're preoccupied with Jewish myths and extra-biblical traditions of men. Uh, they're obsessed with the minutia, microscoping ideas and beliefs that only create fruitless discussions. Uh, they're unedifying. They're talking about genealogies and the law, but using it as a platform for fighting, for arguing, for making up weird stuff and twisting what the Bible says. Uh, friends, they were more interested in fighting than they were in defending the faith. In that way, they, they aren't at all concerned about what God says faithful shepherds should be doing, teaching sound doctrine. They don't have ears to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to talk about things like the gospel, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, or how to live a holy life. Instead, they want to gain a following. They meet that they flattered and recruited. They want to spread half-truths to gain a following. They make up house rules along the way to disrupt God's house. They are not men worthy to follow because they don't lead God's people towards knowing God's truth. The knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness is not their priority. It's something else. It's politics. It's being respected. It's a crowd. It's a budget. But they're not concerned about sound teaching, and their lifestyles are not worthy to imitate. Look at verse 10. He describes them as insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers. In other words, they're opposed to biblical authority. They're out of control. They're always out of bounds. They don't stay within the rules of God's house. Either Jesus is not Lord of their life or they don't care about elders leading them. They are mavericks spiritual hitchhikers. They like to date the church but not be married to the church. Instead of treating Christ's bride like one of your daughters, with tenderness and care and truth, they treat the church like a prostitute. They use it. They make up rules. And they hurt Christ's sheep. There's no fear of God in their eyes. 
They're empty talkers. They're, they're full of gossip and busybodies. They live off of hearsay and not thus saith the Lord. They're not concerned with strengthening the unity of the church. They want to rip it apart. Their empty talk is even used to slander the faithful shepherds who are trying to care for Christ's church. He says they are deceivers. They mislead others. Their motives for ministering is duplicitous. It's demonic. Their reputation is far from being above reproach. They are disqualified. Their character is so twisted, their motives are so backwards, that even the natives in Crete said some troubling things about their reputation. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Pah! That's a bad description. How would you like to be called liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? Friends, that's like us calling Las Vegas Sin City, but actually speaking about a church or ministers of one. They're not characterized by godliness or faithfulness. They're characterized by vices and demonic traits. So what does Paul instruct Timothy or Titus to do? He says, let the punishment fit the crime. They are to have their platforms removed from disrupting Christ's church anymore, and they must be silenced immediately. Titus 1.11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He says, Titus, these men need to be muzzled. Their pulpits removed and removed from leadership immediately. And if they aren't repentant, removed from church membership as an act of church discipline. I'll save that for a sermon or two down the road in Titus 3, verses 9 to 11. You can read ahead or you can wait. The intensity, though, Paul is talking about here is not over trite things, guys. Listen, Christians can disagree about a lot of things and still love each other. You can argue about all sorts of things and have your preferences over choirs and worship bands or even whether you're pre-mill, on-mill, or post-mill or whether you vote Democrat or Republican or whatever your views on foreign policy, vaccinations, wearing masks. All these things, friends, can be important to each one of us. But friends, they're not the most important. They're of lesser importance than what is most important. You see, as Christians, we should be most important about what God says is most important, like the gospel, like how a church is to be ordered, like biblically qualified men leading Christ's church how to disciple Christ's sheep. That's what God says is most important. But friends, if we're not careful, we can get sidetracked, can't we? We can begin to pre preoccupy with things that divide the church instead of unite the church. But what does Paul say? He says not only silence them, muzzle them, but he says rebuke them, that they may be sound in the faith. Look at Titus 1.13. Rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Friends, Paul's letter to Titus here in chapter 1 is over a serious matter. The unity and order of Christ's churches were being threatened and those serving in leadership were not only disqualified. Listen to me. 
This is the one time like I want to pick up the pulpit, but I can't do it because then I wouldn't be having (laughs) self-control. The severity of what Paul's dealing with in Crete is not over some minor points of doctrine. It's not over preferences. These men are disqualified because they're ungodly. They're not above reproach. They don't teach sound doctrine. But here's the worst indictment. They're not even converted. They're not even a Christian. Does it matter how many degrees you have? It doesn't matter how big your ministry platform is. It doesn't matter. What matters is do you know God? Do you know the Lord? Do you believe the gospel you tell others every Sunday? Friends, self-deception is a real thing in Christ's church, in his house. Look at Titus 1, 15 and 16. I'm not making this up. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. They confess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Friends, there's three questions that every person in this church needs to be able to answer and grow in. What is the gospel? How do I know I'm saved? And how can I help others know that they are saved? What is the gospel? How do I know I'm saved? And how can I help others to know that they are saved? Friends, stick your nose in your Bible. Put your knees on the ground in prayer and surround yourself with men and women who serve as mirrors for your soul. Where we are telling the honest truth about each other. Not to harm us, but that we be sound in the faith. Rebuking when done in love is to wake us up from our dullness of heart and put our eyes back on Jesus. Friends, this is exactly what Jesus warned, didn't he not? Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, many will say to me, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out many demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, very quickly, I have four super fast applications you can drop down or listen to. Number one, train your mind to exercise biblical discernment. Train your mind to exercise biblical discernment. Friends, it should be normal for every Christian in here to teach their children, to teach their spouse, to teach one another. What does the Bible say about that? What does God's word say about what you're thinking? What does God's word say about dating, marriage, unity, 
sexual purity, forgiveness, repentance, elders, the church. What does the Bible say? Not your feelings, not your experiences, not what you grew up with. What does the Bible say? I want to know what God says. Train your mind to exercise biblical discernment. Number two, be a catalyst for encouraging sound doctrine, but be a wall for stopping the spread of division. Be a catalyst for encouraging sound doctrine, but be a wall for stopping the spread of division. Friends, very simple. You can put this in your Bible. If you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. If you see a dear brother or sister growing or struggling or, you know, you see God doing something in their life, encourage them. If you see God at work in their heart, say something to them. Encourage them in sound doctrine. And yet in the same breath, brothers and sisters, if you see someone spreading seeds of division outside these walls and inside them, slander, false teaching, if you see something, say something. Rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. There's a gentle way to do that, Galatians 6.1. There's an abrupt, sharp way to do that, Titus 1.13. Pray for wisdom on what type of rebuke someone might need to hear. Number three, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Very simple. We are but men. Jeff, Tom, Alan, you know the sins of your own heart. You know the the struggles. We, we've confessed these things to each other. Brothers, I need you to shepherd me, and I'm committed to shepherding you. And church, we need your prayers and your encouragement. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. He's usually coming after the shepherds. If they're going to be faithful, they're going to get bit, slandered, maligned. But friends, our good shepherd will protect his church. Pray for us to be godly, to be faithful, and to live above reproach lives before you. Lastly, number four, aspire to the godliness of an elder. Aspire to the godliness of an elder. Friends, notice I didn't say to the office, but to the godliness. And that's men and women. I like how D.A. Carson has put it. The most remarkable feature of the list is that it is unremarkable. It contains nothing about intelligence, decisiveness, drive, wealth, power. Almost everything on the list is elsewhere in the New Testament required of all believers. <laughs> we should walk away from Titus 1 wanting to be more godly. Everybody. Elizabeth Elliot once said that when she was growing up, her parents had a sign hanging in the kitchen that served as a constant house rule for their family. Maybe you've heard it said before. Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest of every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. May that be a reminder of the house rules in our homes and the house rules that we try to protect and obey in God's house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have told us how your church is to be formed, how it is to be cared for, how it is to be led. Lord, I pray you would give us discernment, that we would not allow bad teaching or bad examples to influence us towards sin. Lord, cause us to fear you. Cause us to be mirrors for one another, showing one another where we are off and in need of repentance. Lord, I pray you teach us how to be gentle when that is certainly necessary and how to be bold and straightforward 
when that is necessary. Lord, protect your church. Build up your church. Lord, raise up more godly shepherds and cause the godliness to increase in the life of our church. In Christ's name, amen.